All right. If you would, take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 1. Like I said last week, hopefully your Bible will begin to automatically fall open to the book of Acts. We're going to begin studying Acts for several several months now. If you have your phone or a tablet with you, be sure and open that so you've got God's Word right there in front of you as we go through the, the Scripture this morning, repeating a little bit of what the Scripture that we did last week, but also looking at some new ideas taken from the beginning of, of Acts chapter 1. A couple of things as we get started. In your worship guide, your bulletin on the back, there are some sermon notes that you can use just to follow along to have an idea of where we're going, the big picture of what we're looking at this morning, and then also some resources and, and some additional verses that you can look at as you might, as you might want to. Also, there is a very large, but appropriately large, bookmark in your bulletin this morning that we want you to be able to take with you. Here's what we want to do. Even if you're not able to gather with us every week here at First Baptist, we want to read the book of Acts together. Maybe you're right now not in the habit, not in the process of reading God's Word on a consistent basis. Let this be a place to get started. And the way we're going to do this is there's 28 chapters in Acts, and so we have it spread over 28 weeks, and you can see the way that that falls out on your, on your bookmark there. This week, we as a church will read Acts chapter 1. Some people, if you feel like an overachiever, and hopefully not an overachiever, but just someone really wanting to jump into God's Word, it would be great to read Acts chapter 1 every day. You're continuing to put, your, put God's Word repetitively into your heart and your mind. Some people, the starting point may just be you just read Acts chapter 1 sometime this week as we're beginning to study this. And then when we come back next Sunday, the sermon will be about the end of Acts chapter 1. So you'll have already read ahead. Next week, Acts 2, sermon about Acts 2, and we'll just continue to go through. We'll take a few, make a few changes along the way. On the back... Of the bookmark, you'll find two memory verses that we're going to memorize as a church. The first is Acts 1.8, so it's printed there for you to be able to review and to look at. And the other we'll get to later is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. So those memory verses are included for you. And then there's just a couple of questions down at the bottom. If you need something to prompt you as you're reading the Bible, you say, I opened the Bible, but I really don't know what to do after I start reading there are a few questions there to use as you read God's Word and, and to kind of prompt your thinking. And so I hope you'll take this bookmark, that you'll put it to good use, and better than that, that you'll grab an extra one on the tables around the, around the edge of the sanctuary. Take an extra one, take it to a neighbor, take it to a family member, take it to a friend. Let them know what we're doing as a church, that we are committed to studying God's Word, and maybe they want to join us in, in reading the book of Acts and, and more than reading it, living it out with our lives, living it out as a church. And so we want to make this available to you. Should you lose yours, it's very large. You'd have to work hard to lose it. But should you lose yours, come back, let us know. I know Debbie will be glad to, to make some more for sure as we go. But what did you know about that? All right. Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, just like we did last week. And then we're, we'll jump in into that. Acts 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven 
after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As we get ready to jump into this scripture, as we think again about being witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, I want to let you know that our church has a chance to celebrate, we're going to pray here in just a second, about the gospel at the ends of the earth, because one of our church members, uh, James and Christy Roberts, are serving right now in the ends of the earth, and they are getting ready to give, Christy's getting ready to give birth to their second child. Tonight, will be there tomorrow morning, uh, and so she's going to have a chance to uh, welcome our newest missionary kid into the, into the family there in, in Delhi. And so let's just take a second and pray for them as we're thinking about Acts 1-8, and then we're going to move right into the sermon. God, we thank you that You have called people, you have called all of us to be your witnesses. You've called all of us to make disciples of all nations. Sometimes that means we live here and we travel far away. Sometimes that means you call us to live far away. And Father, we pray for this family. We pray for James and Christy and Rebecca as they prepare for this new stage in their family. God, we pray for this new baby that its life would be about the spread of the gospel to all people. It would be for your glory. This family has, has, by your will, chosen to live in a place where the gospel is not present, but you're using them. God, you're working through them. And we celebrate with them. We partner with them. We pray for them right now. We thank you for the work that you're doing there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I want us to think about this morning. We want to think about this concept of the kingdom of God. And remember that as a church, as individuals, we are either advancing, we are either building God's kingdom, or we are advancing, being a part of a kingdom opposed to God's kingdom. Those are the only two options. Either we are building God's kingdom, or we are, or, or we are working in opposition to God's kingdom. This idea of the kingdom of God is something that we don't think about very much in America. We don't have a king, we don't have a queen, we don't think in those, those terms at all. The closest we get to thinking about kingdom is during NBA season when people talk about King James and they're referring to LeBron James, or we go to Burger King and we eat. That's about the closest we get to thinking about kingdom. Even, even in our church culture, We don't talk very much about kingdom, or or certainly not as much as we should talk about kingdom. 
When you look at the Gospels, and when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about the first four books in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That tell about the story of Jesus, tell about what Jesus was doing, what he was teaching. Just like the book of Acts says here at the beginning. When you look at those first four books of the New Testament, the term church shows up three times. The term kingdom, in reference to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, shows up over 80 times. Most of the time, we talk about church. Most of the time, the Gospels talk about kingdom. And so we need to think about what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean for our church to be involved in the kingdom of God? What, what are we even talking about when we say that we exist to be a part of that? Now, you might be tempted to say, I thought our church existed to proclaim and display Jesus. I don't hear any kingdom in in that. Well, first off, if you thought to yourself that our church exists to proclaim and display Jesus, I might start crying tears of joy because that meant that you heard me for the the last four weeks. So that's our mission, that we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. And we have a chart that helps us to understand this because every mission needs a good chart. And so we have this chart where we say that we exist to proclaim. Proclaim is what we do with our mouths, is what we say. Display is what we do with our lives. And we are going to do those things supremely. Jesus is greater than all things. Fully, Jesus deserves our whole lives. And widely, if this message really is that great, it needs to go to all people. And so we talk about we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. What does that have to do with kingdom of God? What does that have to do with kingdom language? Well, proclaim and display are purposefully kingdom language. When you talk about the word proclaim in the New Testament, proclaim is something that you do in public. It's an announcement that you make. It's a proclamation that you make about the king and about his kingdom. And so when we say that we proclaim something... We're talking about kingdom language. We're talking about our king and his kingdom. When we talk about displaying the kingdom, it just means that we show people what we're talking about. We don't use the word stand. When we use the word standard in the English language, we're usually talking about you're trying to measure up to a particular standard. But the word standard in the English language can also refer to a banner or to a flag that represents a kingdom. Even today, there's the royal standard of Scotland or the royal standard of England. Kingdoms throughout history have had flags or pennants or banners that they would fly, and it was called the standard. It was meant to display what the kingdom stood for. And so when we say that we proclaim and display Jesus, we're talking about we're proclaiming and displaying Jesus Not as a weak spiritual teacher from centuries ago. We're proclaiming and displaying Jesus as king. And when we do that, we're saying we are going to be a part of building his kingdom. We're going to be a part of advancing his kingdom. We're going to live kingdom lives. And so when we talk about this mission, and we introduced this last week, there are four phrases that I kind of want us to think about. Here's the four phrases. This mission is spirit-empowered. We don't do it on our own. It's action-oriented. We cannot fulfill God's mission by sitting in this place right here. It's good that we're here this morning, but this is not kingdom living in its fullness. So it's spirit-empowered. It's action-oriented. It's outward-expanding. 
kingdoms by their very nature, and sometimes this has been a negative thing throughout history, but kingdoms by their nature are outward expanding. They're always looking to go new places, to bring new people under the rule of the king. And here's the fourth thing. Our mission that we have as a church has to be kingdom-minded. When we think about what does it mean to be a church, when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian, I hope after this morning you'll think about the word kingdom. If you start using the word kingdom when you refer to church, if you start using the word kingdom when you refer to your your life as a Christian, we'll begin to kind of tap into what God's word teaches us about this concept. All right, let's see this in Acts. It's one thing for me to say this. It's another thing to see it in in God's word. Look in Acts 1-3. So if you still have your phone open or or you have your Bible open, look back in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says... After his suffering, so after Jesus' crucifixion and and ultimately his resurrection, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 years. Now, just as a little bit of a side note, there are people that talk about the resurrection of Jesus was just a myth or the resurrection of Jesus was just this apparition that, that people might have seen a vision of Jesus, but it it wasn't really legitimate. Notice that it says, he presented himself and gave many convincing proofs. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And so there was the idea that Jesus appeared multiple times to people. This doesn't happen in visions. This doesn't happen in apparitions. He was appearing to them after his resurrection for a particular purpose. And it tells us right here what that purpose was. He appeared to them and spoke about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And we might, we might see this and think, okay, so after Jesus' resurrection, he decided that there was something new that he needed to teach them. Well, that's not entirely the case. Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom of God for three years. For his entire ministry, his ministry had been focused on the kingdom. So he taught them for three years about the kingdom of God. Then his crucifixion and his resurrection takes place. And then he has 40 days. And what does he do over those 40 days? He teaches them about the kingdom of God. And you might be thinking to yourself, man, they must have gotten bored hearing about the kingdom of God for three years. Then Jesus comes back and all he can do is talk about the kingdom for 40 more years. When you hear the same stories over and over and over again, you might think they got bored. Except that explains our misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. There's never a time in our Christian life that we can say we're bored with the gospel. We're ready to move beyond the gospel. Give us something more. There's never a time in our Christian life that we can say we're bored with God's kingdom. I need something more. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, the kingdom of God living as his people is not something that we move beyond. It's something that we move deeper within. And so if we think in terms of, oh, I know that, I'm ready to move on to something else, we've misunderstood the good news about Jesus. Because if we really understand what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, it's something that we never move beyond. We just understand it in a deeper way. We understand it in a fuller way, and it begins to impact our lives in new ways. So be very careful as you grow up in your faith, as you grow up in your Christianity, 
be careful of this idea that says, well, I'm moving beyond that. I don't need the gospel language anymore. I don't need the kingdom of God language anymore. We all need it because it explains who we are as God's people. So the disciples heard about this for three years. Then they heard about it for 40 days. And then look what happens next. Verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the fact that he's talking about Holy Spirit language is very important here because of what will come next. So he says, you're going to be baptized. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 6, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, one of the interesting things about the Bible is that we are able to see words and we're able to see what's being talked about, but it's not like a movie. We can't see reactions. And so we're not sure here, but sometimes I read this question and I'm thinking that when Jesus heard this question, he went, are you serious? We've talked about the kingdom of God for three years. And then I come back from the dead and we talk about the kingdom of God for 40 more days and you ask a question like this. It's like when you, if you teach or you parent and you say something over and over and over again, and then you get the blank stare back at you and you think, I just wasted 30 minutes of my life speaking about this and nobody got what I was talking about. But it's interesting, I, I don't know if Jesus slapped his forehead here, but it's interesting that he doesn't verbally rebuke them. And so we have to be careful of implying something because he doesn't rebuke them. He just says, it's not for you. Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You see, the disciples, they knew their Old Testament a lot better than we know the Old Testament. And they knew from the Old Testament, and this is very important, they knew from the Old Testament that there was a connection between the coming of the Spirit of God, the outpouring of the Spirit of God, and the kingdom being fulfilled. You go back to Isaiah. Really, you can read all of Isaiah, but if you want a verse in particular, you look at Isaiah 32, 15, and there are these connections that happen throughout the Old Testament that, that when the Spirit is poured out, then the kingdom will be fulfilled. Then the kingdom will come. And so the disciples here, they heard, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they thought, we finally made it. We've made it to the end. And Jesus tells them, no, you haven't made it to the end. It's not, you don't need to know the times or dates. You don't know when things are going to be finalized. I'm just telling you that this is going to happen and you're going to be involved in it. And here's the interesting thing about the book of Acts. And it's worth flipping over. Flip over to Acts chapter 28. Or if, in your, if you're in your phone, you can scroll really quickly. Acts 28 is the very last chapter in the book before you get to the letter to the Romans. When God's, when God's spirit is at work, God's kingdom will grow. And when God's kingdom is growing, you know God's spirit is at work. Look how the book of Acts ends. Acts 28, verse 30. For two whole years, 
Paul stayed there. He's talking about when he's in Rome. He stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts begins with the kingdom of God and it ends with the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling them, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit to be able to proclaim the kingdom of God, to be able to live as part of the kingdom of God. You get to the very end of the book of Acts, and what's Paul doing? He's talking about the kingdom of God. So there's something here that we need to latch on to. And there are three realities about the kingdom of God that I want us to see this morning. Here's the first one. It's already not yet. When we think about God's kingdom... The first issue we need to talk about is this issue of timing because it ties in directly to the disciples' questions. The disciples are asking, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time that everything is going to come to an end? They wanted to know, when is the kingdom of God going to happen? And that's a good question. If if you're saying this kingdom of God is such a big deal, when's it going to happen? And the answer that seems to come out of the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is already happening, but we have not yet seen the fullness of it. So we already live, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, we can already say that we're living as part of the kingdom of God, but we have not yet seen its fulfillment. One one caution here from the beginning, if you are very interested in end times prophecies and end times ideas. Be careful that that interest in end times prophecies and end times material doesn't distract you from living a part of God's kingdom right now. Sometimes people get so obsessed with dates and timing and end times ideas that they forget that we're not given those dates. We're not given those times. What we are given is Acts 1.8. You're going to receive the Spirit you're going to be my witnesses, therefore get about the work. And so if any time in times material distracts you from living as part of God's kingdom, set it to the side, because it's not being used in a biblical way at that point. So Jesus is having to, is having to deal with the disciples at this point and say, you want to know when the kingdom of God's going to happen? Well, guess what? It's already here, and it's not yet finished. That's the best I can do to you. It's like when you go on a trip with little kids, and they ask what? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? My parents came to uh, visit, and my brother, just younger than came, and he brought his two kids, and they came this weekend. We've figured out with our kids, we can't tell them when the grandparents are coming. Because if you tell them that the grandparents are coming, Amanda's life spirals out of control for all of those weeks. Are they here yet? When are they going to come? Are they here yet? When are they going to come? They just can't process time. In little kid world, it's either now or the next moment. That's all the timing they understand. These disciples heard the Holy Spirit's going to come, and all they could think is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Is the kingdom final? And Jesus says, you're not going to know that. You're already living as part of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus starts his ministry, he says, repent For the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. It's right now. It's happening before you. 
Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10, you may recognize, comes from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, and then I want to say who art in heaven, just because memory kind of comes back, but our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we think about this idea of living as part of God's kingdom, we have to watch out for two errors. God's kingdom does not equal church, okay? God's kingdom, we don't put God's kingdom of God equals church. That's an error that that creeps up sometimes in the church as we read the Bible, but those things are not equated. God has given us the church. He's created us as the church to advance his kingdom, to live as part of his kingdom, but kingdom of God does not equal church, The church is created to advance the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom, to display the kingdom. That's what we do. Here's the other error. Kingdom of God does not equal heaven. Sometimes we hear kingdom of God and we think that's entirely future. When we die, then we'll be a part of the kingdom of God. But kingdom of God does not just equal something future. It's already and it's not yet. One little aside that's not in your notes, but we we need to say it, and I want to say it in the most sensitive but but straightforward way I can. Biblically, kingdom of God does not equal United States of America. And and we need to hear this on Memorial Day, because this is very important that we we can get this mixed up. That is not me being unpatriotic. I hope it's me being more patriotic and saying we have to be careful of this equation because sometimes in the media, sometimes in certain material, kingdom of God, what God is doing in bringing all people, all nations under his rule can then be put up as, well, that equals the United States of America. It's not the way it works. It's not the way that God's kingdom works. God desires for his people in the United States of America to be active in his kingdom. And often, that may mean military service. That may mean political service. That may mean doing what God has called you to do, but we don't want to make the mistake of kingdom of God automatically equals or is the same as the United States of America. God's kingdom is what God is doing and bringing all people, all things under his rule. And that that, that goes outside of our country. That goes outside even of our lifetimes of what God is doing and bringing all people there. And so God's kingdom is already not yet, which means that in our lives right now, our responsibility is to do what the Lord's Prayer says and to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's something we want to keep in mind. The one difference... One main difference between living on earth right now and living in God's kingdom in heaven is right now on earth, we live as part of God's kingdom in the presence of those who are not followers of Christ. When we are no longer on earth, when we are in heaven with God, we will no longer have the opportunity to live as part of his kingdom in the presence of those who are not following him who are not worshiping him because they will not be present there. And so when we think about our lives right here, when we think about our church right here, we can't go and hide. We can't say we're going to withdraw and do our own thing because this is the one time that we will have a chance to do God's will in the presence of those who don't worship him. 
This is the one time that we will have a chance to say to someone, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. And if we do that in hiding, if we do that in secret, we've given up the one opportunity that we have to build God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So what's the timing of God's kingdom? It's already present, but we've not yet seen its fulfillment. Here's the second thing. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's one of only two options. There are only two kingdoms in existence. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. God has delivered us from this domain, this kingdom of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There are two kingdoms at work. There's a kingdom of darkness, and there's a kingdom of light. There's a kingdom that is a part of God's agenda, a part of God's will, and there's a kingdom that's opposed to God's will. And one of the most dangerous mistakes that we can make is what I like to call the three little bears mistake. The idea that, you know, there's Papa Bear, and his porridge gets too hot, and then there's Mama Bear, and hers gets too cold, but then there's this porridge in the middle And it's just right. And sometimes we make the mistake of creating a third kingdom. I'm not really, you you might say, I'm not really obsessed with the church thing. I'm not, you know, I I don't mind coming, but I'm just not a religious person particularly. I don't have a problem with God's kingdom, but I'm I'm really not going to get that involved. But I'm also not going to advance Satan's agenda. You know, I'm not opposed to God. I'm just not entirely for it. I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. The problem is that the middle doesn't exist. When you look at God's word, there are two kingdoms. Either we are advancing his kingdom, we are advancing and living a part of his kingdom, or we are opposed to his kingdom. And it's so hard to say, but yeah, I want to be in the middle, but the middle doesn't exist. There's God's kingdom, and there's rebellion against God's kingdom. And so we have to keep that in mind. Here's the best illustration I know of that. And it comes from a book by Ed Stetzer called Subversive Kingdom. It's one of the resources at the bottom of your notes. But here's the illustration that Stetzer gives. And I hate to bring in the, the state of Tennessee here, but, you know, I do, it, I do it for those of you who are involved who like Tennessee. So here it is. During the Civil War... When you think about the state of Tennessee, it's divided really into three parts, western, central, eastern. Even sometimes tourism, they promote themselves in that way. It's always kind of been three states, western, central, and eastern. During the Civil War, western Tennessee and central Tennessee sided with the Confederacy. Western and central sided with the Confederacy. Eastern Tennessee sided with the Union. And so when western and central Tennessee began to break away, when they were in rebellion against the government, eastern Tennessee found itself in a a weird position. They were in rebellion against the, the other side of the state, who was also in rebellion against the government. So here's the point. Eastern Tennessee was in rebellion against the rebellion. Here's this group in western and central Tennessee rebelling against the government. Here's this group in eastern Tennessee rebelling against the rebellion. As God's people, in this world, we live in rebellion against the rebellion. In the world around us, 
the ways of the world, those who are opposed to God are in rebellion against God. And so we, as followers of Jesus, find ourselves in rebellion against that rebellion, saying we are not going to go that direction. We are not going to take those goals. We are not going to take those values. We're not going to live in that way. We're going to rebel against that way, and we're going to live for God. And so we have to come to the point that we understand what it means to live as part of God's kingdom, what it means to follow him in seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And to be honest with you, this is one of those lifetime endeavors. I can't tell you this morning everything that you need to know about living as part of God's kingdom. We're going to study it as we go through the book of Acts. You're going to spend your whole life as a Christian figuring it out. But here's two things that I want you to know about the kingdom of God. And they're on our last slide. They're our last point for this morning. The kingdom of God is simple and it's subversive. So when we ask, what's the solution? How do we build God's kingdom? I want you to know that God's kingdom is simple. Sometimes we make it very complicated. How do I live as God's kingdom? And then we get a list of ten things that we're supposed to do. It's actually very simple. Know who God is, know God's word, worship him, follow him. It's not particularly complicated. It's, it's living out what he's called us to do. But it's also subversive because, remember, we're in rebellion against the rebellion. We're not living according to the ways of the world. And so we have to think about that as a church. We're not going to get caught up in tactics We're not going to get caught up in marketing. We're not going to get caught up in manipulation. We are simply going to live as God's people in this place for his glory. It's very simple. And sometimes people in my generation, particularly, can complicate the simple. We can take something that's simple and we can make it more difficult or or more complex than it really should be. My grandpa, who was uh, my maternal grandfather who was a part of the military and who died a few years ago when he died I wrote something about his life that I want to read you a portion of here's what it says it says grandpa was an extraordinarily ordinary man some of you are extraordinarily ordinary and that's not a negative that's a great positive he was an extraordinarily ordinary man by that mean by by that I mean that we live in a world that worships the flamboyant and extravagant, and Grandpa was none of those things. Instead, he worked faithfully as a mechanic, he served in the armed forces, he loved his wife and family, he cared deeply for his church, he got excited about going to sporting events, and he never met a stranger he couldn't or wouldn't talk to. There are no neon lights or Broadway banners needed for this man. Instead, something more like Micah 6.8 seems right. What does the Lord require of us? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. And then at the end, I just wrote, if only one day I can be so ordinary. Sometimes we get in this mindset, if we're really going to live as a part of the kingdom of God, it has to be complicated. It has to require all these different things. And yet it's quite simple. And people in my generation need to hear that from the greatest generation. But then there's the flip side of it, that the kingdom of God is also subversive. That the kingdom of God, and this is something that the older generation needs to hear from the younger generation. 
that being a part of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that we just automatically mix in with everybody. It means that we may have to attack some of the strongholds of society. It means that we may need to be radical. It means that we may need to take steps that are difficult. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Generally, when we think about selling all that we have, we don't equate joy with that. But when you live as a part of God's kingdom, you say, I will sell everything. I will give up everything. I will do something that makes no sense to the world around me because I know that God's kingdom is worth it. And somehow, older generations, simple, younger generations, subversive, we have to be able to hold those two realities together as we think about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so as a church, we will exist to proclaim and display Jesus because we are going to be a part of of building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Which means, and this is where it can get very difficult, our reputation as a church, our size as a church, our worldly success as a church is not as important as advancing the kingdom of God. There might be a situation in which our size, our numbers, our popularity, our worldly success might take a hit because we need to do something to advance the kingdom of God. And so we're saying we will put that above what others might think of us, what people might think of as a successful church. There's a song that came out a couple of years ago that kind of exemplifies what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, what it means to build God's kingdom. Here in a few minutes, we're going to sing this song together as as our confession to the Lord that we want to see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. I have some of the lyrics on the screen for you. This is a song called Build Your Kingdom Here by Wren Collective Experiment. I may not have them. Maybe they're not on the screen, but let me read them to you. It says, We seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. Refuse to waste our lives for you're our joy and prize. To see the captive hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace, we lay down our lives for heaven's cause. And then it says, we are your church. We pray, revive this earth. And then when it goes into the chorus, it says, build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire, win this nation back, change the atmosphere, build your kingdom here, we pray. That's our prayer, that the realities of God's kingdom would come to bear on our lives individually and would come to bear on this church. And I pray that that is your prayer as well. And as we sing these words in a few minutes, it will be your confession to the Lord. I will worship Jesus as King, and I will be involved in a church that proclaims and displays Jesus to all people. I'm going to pray for us. After I pray, if you need someone to pray with you, James and I, we stand here at the front, 
And we would love to pray with you about God's kingdom at work in your life, in your family. And we're also going to sing this song as our confession as a church of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Let's pray.